radio. Moss back over to Campbellini, winds up and he scores! Jeff Campbellini lets a laser go from the near side circle, and the Wolverines take a 1-0 lead off the rocket, off the stick of Jeff Campbellini. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be hosting the program solo tonight. Well, uh, this Friday, of course, marks uh, a historic date in American history and in the history of our personal lives, for those of us of a certain age. Uh, The assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy happened uh, 50 years ago this Friday. And, of course, there's been a lot of... uh, Attention uh, given to such a commemoration. Uh, 50's a big year. Things sort of become officially registered as historical once they reach that sort of double digit. Okay, 50, half a hundred years. Wow. Uh, That passage of time. And, of course, uh, since this was uh, a public execution, uh, it's still rather troubling and... uh, unresolved. There are a number of uh, questions that remain about the facts and details uh, of the murder of John F. Kennedy and the subsequent murder of his uh, ostensible assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, a couple days later, shot in police custody, uh, pretty much gangland style. So uh, it's an interesting fact to note that uh, a you know, we tend to divide decades up. You know, history is divided into 10-year decades, and we talk about the 60s or the 70s as though they were, you know, concrete units of 10 years that fit together. But it's really the assassination of President Kennedy uh, that sort of is the tipping point for the beginning of what we think of today as the 1960s. Uh, Little-known trivial fact, I suppose, uh, in the context of that, but culturally hugely significant. Uh, the very same day, November 22nd, 1963, uh, in England, uh, that was the date uh, that the second album by the Beatles was released. And, of course, that was released a few months later here as uh, Meet the Beatles. And uh, the Beatlemania trend that swept the world pretty much in the months after uh, the assassination of Kennedy here in this country, those are the events that we associate with the beginning of the 60s. Uh, as that sort of construct of the uh, decade of rebellion, freedom, uh, civil rights, etc. And so uh, it was this event that caused a lot of Americans to begin to sort of question the government um, more openly. Uh, I think up until that point, people were generally uh, content to assume that, well, you know, that's what they said, and why should we doubt them? You know, why would they lie? Uh, But when you begin to examine the facts as interpreted by the Warren Commission, uh, you can only wonder, why would they lie? And there are a number of discrepancies and so forth. Of course, books and books have been written. Uh, Next week, I may read some excerpts from Henry Hurt's book, Reasonable Doubt, about Lee Harvey Oswald's assassin, Jack Ruby, a very uh, uh, questionable figure at best. 
But because of the uh, intense, detailed nature of the uh, aspects and the evidence of this uh, case, uh, I'm going to go to a recording, actually. And this is a recording entitled Rush to Judgment. Its uh, name is taken from the book that the speaker, who we're about to listen to, Mark Lane, wrote, first published in 1966. And this was, although many books, some better, have been written since, uh, this was really the first uh, major book, huge bestseller, uh, to critically examine the findings of the Warren Commission. And although uh, some of this may be a little confusing for folks under, oh, let's say, uh, 20 uh, or 30 even, um, I think the rest of us find it pretty compelling. Now, I was only five months old when Kennedy was shot, so I have no personal firsthand memories. Uh, but it uh, it's still a true fact that for me, when I see the Zapruder film, I'm just filled with a sense of dread. And as we will see uh, a number of these repeated images throughout the course of the week, uh, it's a good time to stop and think critically about uh, what actually happened and what were we told actually happened. Um, they may not be the same thing. So here uh, is uh, author Mark Lane speaking about the Warren Commission. When the Warren report was issued, it was hailed generally by newspapers around the country as a fine document, one which answered every question, one which resolved every doubt. However, the report was nothing more, purported to be nothing more, than an adequate summation, a fair summation, of some 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits which had not yet been published. The New York Times had said editorially that the report answered the questions, but it could not say that it was a good or fair document as it did because the Times had not had an opportunity to look at the evidence which had not yet been published. Then the evidence was published. Anthony Lewis wrote in a front page headline story the day the 26 volumes were released. He had had those 26 volumes in his possession for less than three hours. And he wrote, the evidence in the 26 volumes supports conclusively the commission's statement that Oswald, one lone unhappy man, was the assassin. Now, given the fact that Mr. Lewis reads more rapidly than I do, <laughs> it took me a year and a half to read the material in the 26 volumes. And I wonder how Mr. Lewis was able to digest it all in three hours and assure the American people that it all said precisely what the commission stated in its report. One of the crucial questions in the case is the question of whether or not one bullet did what the commission said it did. Because the rifle is not able to fire as rapidly as the commission uh, perhaps would like it to in order to accomplish all of the things which resulted that day, the commission was forced to conclude that one bullet entered the president's neck, back of the neck, exited from his throat, went on to strike Governor Connolly, go through the governor's back, shatter his fifth rib, shatter his right wrist, and end up in his left thigh. And it was later recovered on a stretcher in Dallas, and it is known as Commission Exhibit 399, a bullet, a pure pristine bullet, which has less than three grains of metal missing from it, while Governor Connolly still has more than three grains of metal 
in his right wrist, and many more grains than that in his fifth rib, which was shattered by the, by the bullet. Nevertheless, the commission says this one bullet left behind more grains of metal, evidently, than it possessed. But the whole commission case turns on this question because all of the shots were fired in less than six seconds. This rifle requires a minimum period of 2.3 seconds in order to reload and aim at being an ancient bolt-operated, hand-operated weapon. If four shots were fired, if four shots were fired, then three interval periods are required. Three interval periods means 2.3 seconds times three. It's almost seven seconds just for the interval periods. And it was all accomplished in about in 5.8 seconds. So if four shots were fired, we know that neither Oswald nor anyone else was a lone assassin with this weapon. But then we come to a, another remarkable aspect of this. The doctor who treated Governor Connolly came out of the room at 4.30. Now, we must remember Commission Exhibit 399, the only link between the Manlika Carcano and the assassination discovered on a stretcher somewhere in Dallas, was discovered at 2 o'clock on November 22nd. Well, we went down to Dallas and looked at all the footage, and listened to all of the tapes, and heard Dr. Shaw coming out of the room at 4.30, describing the governor's wounds, two and a half hours now after a bullet has been discovered. And he starts to describe the wounds, and he says the governor will survive, and it's not too serious, his wrist is fractured, the wound in the chest, etc. And then, and then the, the film is cut, right in the middle of the sentence. It's cut, because the rest was taken by the government. We never knew what that was, but recently, we did a three-hour television special for Channel 5 here, and inviting us to do that, Channel 5, said, if you'd like, you can look at all of our footage. We said, we'd like very much to do that. But they had received some stuff from Dallas very quickly, and of course, the FBI didn't go all over the country and try to get copies of everything. That would probably have been impossible. I think they probably presumed that most of the material in Dallas had not been very widely spread at that time, since they moved in rather early. But Channel 5 here, WNEW-TV, did have some of that WFAA-TV material. And there we heard the end of what Dr. Shaw said for the first time. This was just a month or so ago. For the first time, we heard Dr. Shaw complete the sentence, which the FBI sees and which the government has, but no one was permitted to have. And he said, and the bullet which did all of the damage is in Governor Connolly's left thigh at the present time. It has not yet been removed, but don't be alarmed. It is there. We've seen it. We will remove it shortly. That is not a major problem. Two and a half hours after Commission Exhibit 399 was recovered in Dallas, the bullet which did all of the damage and which fell out of Governor Connolly's thigh, according to the Commission, two and a half hours later, Dr. Shaw said the bullet remained in Governor Connolly's thigh. And it's for that reason, of course, that the FBI seized the film and has made it unavailable. Commander Humes conducted the autopsy on the president's body on November 22nd at the Bethesda, Maryland Naval Hospital. And he made notes when he examined the body. He drafted an autopsy. If you'd like to know what was in that original autopsy, I commend your attention to volume 17, page 45 of the evidence, in which you will find this certificate. This is to certify that I, Commander J.J. Humes, have destroyed by burning my original draft autopsy notes. That takes care of the notes. Actually, they were not his notes. Those were our notes that Commander Humes burned. He was given the responsibility of conducting the autopsy for the American people. And he's a commander in the Navy, 
and the notes which he took are historic documents and belong to all of us. I would like to know why he burned them. Commander Humes testified that it is almost required in cases of violent death inflicted by a missile which moves through a body in order to determine whether the direction that the bullet moved, that photographs of the body be taken, and that x-rays of the body be taken. And at the request of Commander Humes and his direction, photographs and x-rays of the president's body were taken on November 22nd at the Bethesda Hospital. Ostensibly to assist Commander Humes in his determination of the path of the missiles as they course through the president's body. However, Dr. Humes testified that he was never permitted to see the photographs which were taken to assist him, that before they were developed, they were removed from the autopsy room by agents of the United States Secret Service. As far as the x-rays are concerned, no member of the Warren Commission, no lawyer for the Warren Commission ever saw the x-rays or the photographs, the most invaluable documents in this case, in resolving the classic question, where did the shots come from? This did not interfere with the commission at all, though, because when they called Commander Humes, they asked if he had anything to show uh, regarding the nature of the wounds. He said, oh, yes. Gentlemen, I thought that you might be unable to get the photographs and the x-rays. This is a commander of the Navy talking to a commission appointed by the President of the United States, which has given broad and unlimited subpoena powers, which could get any document it wanted anywhere in the United States. He said, therefore, I ask an artist to sketch so that you might be better acquainted. And the lawyer said, and are these drawings accurate to your best knowledge? And he said, no. <laughs> said they could only be accurate if the artist was allowed to see the photographs, but he couldn't see the photographs. So it was just my recollection transmitted to him verbally, which resulted in the sketches. The commission having determined that the evidence offered to it was inaccurate, solemnly admitted it in evidence, of course. And all you can see in the 26 volumes regarding the wounds, anything which depicts them, are three photographs, rather crudely drawn, long after the event by an artist who never saw the photographs or the x-rays and relied upon a verbal description given by the commander. And this is the state of the record. Now, it is not that the commission was unconcerned about carrying out its investigation. Two of the lawyers were indicating that they were sort of rushed and they couldn't do all the important things they had to do. Mr. D'Antonio spoke about Charles Brem, and I think you saw Mr. Brem. And as you know, he wasn't called. He was only the closest spectator to the limousine when the shots were fired. He saw a bullet, the result of the bullet which struck the president's head, which drove a portion of the skull backward onto the street, where in fact it was recovered by a Dallas deputy constable, Seymour Weitzman, eight to 12 inches from the south side of the Elm Street curb, as he testified. Mr. Brim was on television on November 22nd. He was not a secret witness. That's how we knew about him. But he was never called by the commission. Perhaps in its rush, it didn't have time to call the closest spectator, the limousine. But who did the commission call instead, for example? It called Professor Revelo Oliver, a distinguished uh, gentleman who has recently resigned from the Birch Society, I think charging that it is too liberal an organization. <laughs> Professor Oliver, uh, Oliver wrote an article in the American Opinion publication related to the Birch Society. He was in Illinois when the shots were fired in Dallas, Professor Oliver. 
And his article, of course, had nothing whatever to do with what happened in Dallas with any evidence he had to offer. The commission devoted more than 100 pages to the rantings of Professor Oliver in its 26 volumes. And then that was not enough. The commission solemnly called Professor Oliver to testify as one of its witnesses. And hour after hour, Mr. Jenner, one of the distinguished commission lawyers, questioned Professor Oliver to discuss and explore with him his theories. But there is much other relevant information in the report, which we should bear in mind when we hear that the commission lawyers were too rushed to turn out an exact document and were not able to call the relevant witnesses. For example, should you be interested in the condition of Jack Ruby's mother's teeth in, in the year 1937, you need merely return to the page in the documents which publishes her full dental chart, which I suggest would not even been, be relevant if it was charged that Ruby bit Oswald to death. And should you like to know how the commission felt about Jack Ruby's mother's, I quote, fishbone delusion, that is her feeling over a period of some 17 years that something was stuck in her throat, which she thought was a fishbone, the commission devoted a third of a page of its report to a discussion of Jack Ruby's mother's fishbone delusion. And it was this which so occupied the commission that it was an, uh, unable to call more than 1% of the witnesses to the assassination. It was unable to call the most important witnesses to the murder of Officer Tippett. And now we turn to a report submitted by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to the commission. This is what two agents of the FBI, Siebert and O'Neill, reported. They were present at the autopsy, reported that there was no wound in the president's neck. There was, in fact, a wound in the president's back. And this is what the agents say about what they observed. During the latter stages of the autopsy, Dr. Humes located an opening which appeared to be a bullet hole, which was below the shoulders, uh, then it was not high in the neck, and two inches to the right of the middle line. The doctor probed and further probing determined that the distance traveled by this missile was a short distance inasmuch as the end of the opening could be felt with a finger, inasmuch as no complete bullet of any size could be located in the back or any other area of the body, and inspection revealing that there was no point of exit, so it didn't go in and come out, no point of exit. The individuals performing the autopsy were at a loss to explain why they could find no bullets. After the doctors, I'll abbreviate it because it's a long report, but after the doctors were informed that there was cardiac massage done to the president at the Parkman Hospital, they concluded. Immediately following receipt of this information, this was made available to Dr. Humes. Dr. Humes stated that the pattern was clear, that the one bullet had entered the president's back and had worked its way out of the body during external cardiac massage. That was the position on November 27th. But after the commission members looked at the Zapruder film, and there it is seen, Governor Connolly reacts 1.8 seconds to being struck by the bullet 
after President Kennedy reacts. 1.8 seconds. This rifle couldn't fire twice in that period of time. And that's when the commission realized that a new theory had to be born, one explaining that the governor and the president were hit by the same bullet. Well, the first problem is, what do you do with the hole in the back? Well, you burn Dr. Hume's original notes. You suppress the x-rays and the photographs. And then all you have left is the final testimony of Dr. Hume's. And you suppress the FBI report. You don't publish the report because that tells there was a wound in the back which had no point of exit. The bullet only went in a short distance and the bullet fell out. So you have to suppress all of that material. Well, the commission did that. This document, I think, which was just recently declassified, was declassified, I believe, in error. I mean, I think they made a serious error about this, not only because it's so contrary to their case, but I think the mechanics of how it was uncovered indicates it's an error. This is, I believe, Commission Exhibit 7 of those 1,555 has an X in front of it. All those documents which, with Xs in front of them are documents which are not available, which are classified. And the researcher who went down there meant to order document 17, which is not classified. But he made a careless 17. And the archivist who was working there that day, the assistant archivist, thought it was seven and for some reason did not notice, I imagine, that there was an X in front of it and then gave him this document, which we now have. But in any event, it is completely contrary, completely contrary to what the commission said took place. And so by suppressing the evidence, by classifying the evidence, by hiding the x-rays and the photographs, burning the original notes, you can be left with the theory. Well, then we're next left with the next question. Why did Governor Connolly react 1.8 seconds after the president, they were both hit by the same bullet? Ah, uh, said the commission. Governor Connolly was struck merely a glancing blow, a glancing blow. But Dr. Shaw described it as a bullet which entered his back, shattered his fifth rib, caused the entire fifth rib to become secondary missiles, which then spread out through the body, caused, causing a large sucking wound. And uh, one of the lawyers said, well, would Governor Connolly have noticed that right away? <laughs> <clears throat> Dr. Shaw advised uh, the lawyer that in his opinion, he would have noticed it and would have reacted to it at once. And then we have the testimony of Governor Connolly. There is no way to reconcile Governor Connolly's testimony and Mrs. Connolly's testimony with the commission's conclusion that the same bullet which hit the president hit the governor. This is what Governor Connolly said. I heard the first shot and later I was struck. Now Mrs. Connolly seated alongside of him said precisely the same thing, except she was able to observe both the president and the governor. She said, I heard the first shot. I looked at the president, his hands then went to his throat. And uh, she continued, John, her husband, John Connolly, turned to his right to look at the president, couldn't see him, started to turn to the left, and then he was hit. So Mrs. Connolly is wrong. Governor Connolly is wrong. The films taken by Abraham Zapruder, they're wrong. The x-rays and photographs are gone. The original autopsy report is burned, and the FBI report is classified. And that's the way the commission operated to prove that one bullet hit both men. The motion picture film taken by Abraham Zapruder was published by the commission and the frames are all numbered. And it is through the system that the commission fixed various things that took place that day. 
The commission, however, omitted to publish frames 208, 29, 210, and 211. This is, in fact, one of the pages of the Warren Commission report, which shows frame 207, and the next one underneath it is frame 212. Frame 212 has been spliced. There are two other frames put together to make up what the commission calls frame 212. When one of our investigators on the West Coast, who is an engineering graduate student, discovered this, he raised this with a number of engineering uh, faculty members and physicists and others in universities on the West Coast and asked them what could there possibly be in the picture which could have led to the decision by someone in government to remove those frames from the public documents. Obviously, the bullet moves too quickly to be photographed, so a bullet is not the answer. Secondly, a person could not really react quickly enough to seeing or hearing something in 4 eighteenths of a second, so it could not be the reaction of a human being in all probability that was suppressed when the commission omitted those frames. And when one examines frame 212, one sees the sign, large sign, probably about five feet long, which blocks a portion of the film. We don't know what is in frame 28, 29, 10 or 11, but we do know what is in frame 212. By the time you reached frame 212, Mr. Zapruder, who was moving his camera to follow the limousine, had moved his camera so that the left portion of the sign, left bottom portion, is no longer visible. So what has been removed in the frames, clearly, are those frames which show the entire sign. This is relevant because, as one of the commission attorneys has now agreed, if one can show that a bullet hit that sign, then the commission's theory that Oswald was the lone assassin receives another independent fatal blow because the commission's conclusion as to when the president was hit before that would not allow time for anyone using this ancient 1898 relic, which sells for $3 if you buy them in lots of 25 or more, to have operated the bolt and fired. In fact, in the hands of the fastest rifleman the government could find, it took him 2.3 seconds to operate the bolt and fire the next shot. And the president was hit less than a second before these frames were taken. So if a bullet hit that sign, the theory that Oswald or anyone else was the lone assassin with a weapon like this one is forever gone. What you can see in frame 212, while you cannot see the bottom left-hand portion of the sign, are lines of strain across the sign, very clear lines, indicating that the sign is reacting to something which has struck it. And when you look at frame 213 and 214, you see the lines grow longer and longer. And the engineering and physics experts, photographic experts who have examined the sign, say that it appears that a bullet struck the sign in the lower left-hand portion, and the lines of strain can be seen on the succeeding frames. But the hole, of course, is not visible because that portion of the lower left-hand portion where the bullet hole might be, if it is there, has been omitted by the commission in its publication. This was raised with Mr. Wesley Liebler, one of the attorneys for the commission, not long ago. 
Mr. Liebler presented this theory, which had been presented to him in a letter to Mr. Rankin, who was general counsel of the commission, and said, in my view, it is plausible that a bullet did hit the sign. And he said, I have no knowledge that any member of the commission or lawyer for the commission was ever told that the frames had been spliced and that frames had been omitted. And he then called for a new investigation and for an open, a formal request to the Federal Bureau of Investigation as to why that frame was spliced and what is in those missing frames. Mr. Rankin wrote back and suggested that Mr. Liebler, who is now teaching at West Coast University, pay more attention to his studies out there and indicated that the case is closed. Now we have more frames from the Sapruta film, which we should give consideration to. Frame 313 is the frame which shows the president's head as he is struck by the bullet. That's the fatal shot. Now, how the president reacted, how his body moved as the bullet hit him, of course, is most relevant. If he was driven backward, then he was shot from the front. If he was driven forward, he was shot from the back. These are rules of physics which applied even in Dallas on that day. <laughs> but the commission sought to make use, evidently, of these rules in a most perverse way. The commission published all of the frames, including after the bullet struck the president's head, 313, 314, and 315, and other frames. If you look at these frames, as the commission published it, it appears that after the president had been hit, 315 and 314 show the president moving forward, indicating that he was hit from the rear. But one of these brilliant young men in America who are concerned about who killed their president made a thorough examination of the photographs over a period of almost a year and was able to prove, conclusively prove, that the commission published the frames 314 and 315 in reverse order and mislabeled them. Thus, one examining frames 314 and 315 would think the president was driven forward by the bullet which hit from the rear, but since they have been transposed, it shows quite clearly the president was driven back up against the seat. He discovered this by analyzing the, pick the frames, and I won't bore you with the details, but I will read to you a letter from J. Edgar Hoover, which Mr. Hoover wrote to this gentleman who pointed out that the frames were transposed. This is from Mr. Hoover. You are on the stationery of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You are correct in the observation that frames labeled 314 and 315 of Commission Exhibit 885 are transposed in volume 18 as noted in your letter. Mr. Hoover added that the National Archives is aware of this print printing error. However, I do appreciate your interest in this matter. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg here, announcing that this is station WCBN, FM Ann Arbor, your Dharmic free speech station. Good evening and welcome to Yazoo City Calling on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is our weekly dedication to early American blues music, broadcasting to you live from 88.3 megahertz every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. since 1988. My name is Weston Hughes and I am here with Tony Bursey of Detroit 
and Mr. Raleigh Tussing of Ann Arbor, and we've prepared a special show for you. Uh, for the next hour, we'll be playing Genuine 78 RPM.